0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author, This week, my guest is journalist Tim Graney. We are discussing his book, Beyond Bend It Like Beckham, The Global Phenomenon of Women's Soccer, published in 2012 by the University of Nebraska Press. FIFA president Sepp Blatter has said that the future of football is female. In the United States, one could say that the future is now. If you ask a U.S. sports fan to name an American soccer player, chances are that the answer you'll get is Hope Solo, or even Mia Hamm, rather than any male player. The American women's team has had far more success in international competitions than the men's side, with the result being that players on the national team earn an impressive salary with generous benefits and the promise of handsome incentives. At least for women of the U.S. national team, soccer can be a well-paying job. But that is a small select group. Two efforts in the last decade to launch professional leagues for women's soccer in the United States have both met with failure. Players like Hope Solo might gain the attention of high-profile male athletes, but corporations still spend far more money to sponsor individual men in sports than they have invested in professional women's soccer. Tim Graney has been involved with women's and men's soccer for four decades. He knows the players, coaches, and organizers in the United States and Canada, and he has traveled the world to learn firsthand about women's football in other regions. His book gives an encouraging picture of the growth of the sport but he also presents a stark view of the obstacles that girls and women continue to face. The expansion of women's sports is the story of the growth of opportunity on and off the field. So if Sepp Blatter is correct, and the future of the sport is indeed female, this will mean a better future for women of the world. To start our conversation, I asked Tim to explain how he got started as a soccer journalist covering the sport in the United States and Canada. Here is our interview.
1: i have been involved in, in soccer really all my life. I started watching the original North American Soccer League the first year. Uh, then it launched in 1967, so I played. And then um, had had promoted some, some games, both in Canada and the U.S. And just one thing led to another. I met a person in, in Vancouver, and he had a, a magazine, and he said, you know, you know a lot about the women's game. You know a lot about the, the teams in Canada. and you start covering that? And that's really where it started, and that was probably 10 years ago.
0: And what led you to write a book particularly about women's soccer?
1: I think there there were a number of motivations there There wasn't much literature out on the women's game, and I think the women's game has evolved so quickly but there there are some deep historic roots, but there's still some challenges that that people face and you know one one of the things that I notice and I still run into is is people say, "Ah, I like to f- watch soccer, I like to watch the English Premier League and I said, "Well, you know what about the Women's league or the or um, the national team, and they're like, no, I don't like women's soccer. Well, to to me, if you like soccer, you like the sport, and whether it's indoor, or, or women's or or men's or you know a certain league, that that you see the link, and that it it's it's all important. So I think that's still a challenge. I think some of the obstacles that women face in, in developing markets uh, in the Middle East and Africa. Um, things have certainly gotten better. I think on the play on the field, you know this is a sport that's only had six World Cups. so it's really been only 24 years as a you know on, on, on the major map. So to speak. So um, it's it's come a long ways on the field. That it's it's really um, they used. To, people say ah, it's slower. It's not as good and and all that. And technically, the women I think are are virtually at the level of the men. So it's an attractive game to to watch. And I think the 2011 World Cup showed that to a lot of Americans. Yeah,
0: I was going to ask about that, and and I remember reading commentary last summer following the two thousand eleven Women's World Cup that uh, what this World Cup showed was uh, or that you had fans talking about these matches in Germany as as sports events that it wasn't about women playing sports; it was just watching a a great uh, demonstration of athleticism.
1: We didn't see that in 1999. There was the the women players was uh, was was more of the focus on on them as women. This time it was on on athletes, and I think with the the latest uh, pro league that just folded, the the commissioner Tanya Antonucci constantly from from three years before it started said, you know, we have to get beyond being. The, the women's event to where people are just talking about the game and when that happens then we know that we've we've made that we made progress and that was really the first time we saw that was last summer and I think there were a lot of corollaries with the the men's World Cup in 2010 that was so exciting and the u.s got to the um, to the um, round of 16 and and then on the last second goal so um, you saw that same excitement that people were watching it just because it was it was good soccer and it was exhilarating so i think that that was um pretty landmark achievement and to have that happen in another country where you know you really had to get up on the west coast in the morning to watch those games it was even you know made it more more of a unique occasion so the book
0: looks at women's soccer around the world but a a large part of it deals with uh, women's soccer in the United States and this isn't simply a matter of, of you being a, a writer based in the United states you can you can make the case and I'll ask about this how is the United states uh, really the center of the women's soccer world
1: for the most part it's it's seen as leading the way um, So a lot of firsts happened, you know, you had the 1999 uh, Women's World Cup that still is the most watched soccer event in this country, Um, so you had people following the national team, you get the largest crowds for them, but I think even beyond that, um, in the U.S. there was really the first step to create a career path for women in the game, Um, and it's it's certainly playing, but, but there's other elements as well. And so a lot of these um, young women that um, even in their early 20s are going into coaching, and sometimes they're still playing, but um, that really wasn't an avenue 15 years ago. Uh, it was just beginning, but they were looking for a lot of men to coach these these women's college teams. So I think this development of a career path where – um, women can stay involved in soccer, and certainly having that pro level um, helped that. But um, I think that's the U.S. really was was the uh, the leader on that. I think a lot of the the women that I talked to, though, they realize the importance of the other countries developing. I, I interviewed um, Leanne Sanderson and Joanna Lohman, so they play in um, Washington D.C. And um, so they spent a month in India uh, earlier this year, and they plan to go back. So they really have an academy in it, but it's much beyond just going and, and showing people how to kick a ball. It's um, getting involved in, in women's lives. Um, they told the story that there was a 13-year-old girl that had been promised to be be married. And so the the um, uh, NGO director that they worked with uh, took, took the two players, and they went to to. Uh, the girl's house. Talk to the parents and convince her that there were other things that other paths for for her, other than to get married and and essentially then start her own family at that young. So, um, you know, that's that's the sort of thing that they're committed to. They've been talking to other countries about rolling out that program, and they're still trying to to play pearl, but it's really looking beyond just their own careers in, in soccer, the playing careers, and what can they do to, to better the game. And I think those are tremendous stories. So these
0: women, are they conscious, and, and thinking of American as well as Canadian women, are they, they conscious of this role that they're more than players, they're going to be, uh, in their involvement in the sport, they're going to be ambassadors of, of women's sports?
1: I I think to a person they, they all are cognizant of that because they're they're probably the second generation where the first role models were the Julie Foudys and the Mia Hams and Brandy Chastain from the nineteen ninety nine team and so those players were around for a good ten or fifteen years and and were visible to these players when they were young, so now it's really their chance to and, and they're not wrapped up into you know the the ego element of it, but they're just conscious that um, there's a whole different treatment with men's players versus women. When when they talk to the media, when they talk to to fans, and they're very appreciative that people come out. They're very appreciative of the attention, and so they spend more time. and 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 you know that's that's important, and they realize that it's important. But it's it's building that link with with the next generation, with the future players.
0: Tim, you have a chapter of your book devoted to the 1999 Women's World Cup, which was held in the United States. Uh, The U.S. national team won the tournament, uh, defeating China in the final on penalty kicks. And uh, I want to ask, what was the significance of that event for the growth of women's soccer?
1: To me, it's a seminal moment. Um, And I think it, it caught everybody... By surprise, um, before to, to lead up to that, FIFA had awarded the 1999 World Cup to the U.S. But uh, in Sweden in 1995, the event was was I think I call it low key and and very understated. So they were drawing four to five thousand a game, which is about what the U.S. was drawing for a, an average. National team game outside of the World Cup, uh, so FIFA said, you know, let's let's do the same thing. Let's do small stadiums on the East Coast, five to ten thousand seat stadiums, college stadiums, um, and the the implied message was let's not lose a lot of money on this because no, um, their only revenue came out of the men's World Cup, so. The under seventeen, under twenty um, uh, men's World Cup, and never made money in the same with the women. So, um, but off the nineteen ninety four men's World Cup, it was very successful here. Uh, U.S. Soccer had huge databases of people that attended the games and purchased merchandise and referees, and so they leveraged that and they said, you know, we think this event should stand alone, and so they they had. Uh, large stadiums, giant stadium, Rose Bowl, um, and they had a, a large presale because of utilizing those lists. Um, but it still, uh, it was a close run thing in the finances. It did end up making a, a few million dollars because the U.S. got to the final. But it was the the publicity. I think it was it was good time because there wasn't else much else to take. Attention away from from the women. Once people started to focus on it, but they had 65,000 at their first game in New York, and things just rolled from there. I was in Brazil for much of that tournament. I saw I, um, Brazil's team was was very good. It got to the semifinals, but Br- Brazil didn't care. Um, their focus was on the men's team in the Copa America and in Paraguay. So. I knew the scores and that was about it. And I came back to the states Friday before the the final. And I'm I'm reading the papers from from New York to to Detroit. And I called my friend in Columbus that we had been involved in in games for years. And I said, what what happened? And he said, you know, this was all our dreams doubled. He said, you know, no one saw this coming. So I think it was the ads. It was David Letterman's attention. It was people getting to know the players and seeing them as, as as not egomaniacs, but people that cared about their sport, they were bright, they were they were attractive, and they, they embraced that attention because they had never had it before. Um, so I think it set the bar, in some cases, too high. I think the expectation then was the women wanted a pro league, and so the one was started the next year, but it really didn't have the – or in 2001 – but it didn't have the the foundation in the base, so I think we still struggle with that, with women's soccer in terms of the difference between an event. So the Olympics are the center, and the U.S. women are expected to win their fourth uh, gold medal out of five Olympics that they've they've uh, had women's soccer in. So. Um, you know, people will follow that. People will talk about that and talk about the World Cup. But translating that to a weekly league has really been the rubric that we haven't been able to solve, nor have other women's sports such as softball or even hockey in Canada. Um, and so that's that's the 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 gap. So the national team level, um, the crowds have been phenomenal since the World Cup. It's averaged 15,000 in in cities like Portland, Phoenix. Kansas City, um, huge demand for that team, but it's turning that into a weekly league where these these players can hone their skills and and new players can develop and and eventually make the national team.
0: So I want to ask about the professional leagues and and ask what have been the specific issues that have prevented uh, the two attempted. Uh, professional leagues for women from from succeeding you mentioned the the popularity of the the national team and the popularity of the world cup and the number of girls who play soccer so why um, why hasn't this translated into uh, stable and successful professional leagues?
1: we've seen two different models for that approach the f- The first one came out of um, the leader was um John Hendricks, who's uh, the CEO of Discovery Channel, um, and John Hendricks was spending almost as much as Major League Soccer did when it had started five years before. So, um, big stadiums, large budgets. Uh, the players were essentially getting 12-month salaries for for playing six six months of the year. Um, so, I, you know, and 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 I know John Hendricks, and and I think. You know, he is a visionary. I think the the problem was the sponsorships that that the 1999 World Cup had didn't didn't come along to a pro league. And so I think that's still part of the gap where the sponsorships weren't there um, because the gates alone weren't supporting the expense that was taken. And you go to a game and it was like going to an NBA or an NFL game in terms of all the the big screens and the surrounding events, um, but it, it there wasn't the the sponsorship. And then the television money, essentially it was started by, John Hendricks had discovery channels, but other media people came came in. And so, the, you know, I think the second year was on PAX TV and PAX was impossible to find. Um, so you've got people that are... Um, buying into the league to have content no one's watching the content after a certain point you know it's great to to do for for women's and for women athletes but in their core business i'm buying media content that no one's watching and so by the third year uh the media companies were really bailing out that took six years then to launch women's professional soccer in 2009 and that had a much different motto. It wasn't centrally owned. You had separate franchisees that had control over their budgets. Um, and they really made an effort to keep expenses low. Um, you know, they had no control over the economy falling off in 2009, so they really lost during that time. Uh, the CEO, uh, Chief Operating o- Officer Mary Harvey said, You know, I still feel good when I sign a player's contract, and I'm signing about 200 this year. So, um, you know, there were a lot of pluses out of women's professional soccer. I think again, you know, and we can blame the economy, but but the sponsorship and the advertising revenue wasn't anywhere near where it needed to be, or near where people expected within the league, and and ultimately that was probably the it was a financial model that that wasn't playing out. So now, um, really, these these amateur leagues are trying to have a semi-pro division so that they can play the pay the players a little bit um, and and raise the, the standards of, of the players, but um, still not spend a million to three million dollars a year. On a franchise, uh, a coach last Wednesday night um, told me, "You know, we can run a league well under half a million dollars a year, and and have a high quality national league. It can be done. People don't think we can, but and so that's really where where people are targeting now."
0: Something interesting in your chapter on uh, um, professional soccer in the states is that you present profiles of some of the women who played in the league. And uh, and these profiles give a revealing picture of the life of uh, these young women seeking to make a career of sports. So, is there is there a general picture you found of these women uh, from the United States and Canada in terms of the the choices they face uh, regarding a career in soccer and other options?
1: They want to have the option, and I it's, I, I go to the the Pac Ten game so at it, it, it Arizona State, so they. You know, they may only play for a couple of years. Um, maybe some of them are targeting to make a, a national team under 23 or under 20, but they want that option there. Um, these are all very bright women, so they've got um, other other things that they can look at. They could go on to grad school, um, you know, med school, law school, or or a career. So they they all have that to fall back on. So the 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 monetary goal for being a professional is really not guiding them um, it's the opportunity to play every every day to play against some of the best players in the world um, to develop as a player and to, to spend the time on that so that was the appeal there it wasn't that they were going to make you know huge dollars doing it as long as as the bills were paid and they realized that you know I am playing soccer and I could make more money you know if I utilize my my business degree and 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 continue there or continue in school, um, but you know they they want that option um, because they love the sport and want to continue it. So um, that's that's I think WPS has, has really elevated that opportunity for for women, and and we're seeing now that a nun, with with WPS folding like the. Earlier I described Leanne Sanderson and, and Joanna Loman's Academy in India, where you've got people that are are doing more academies trying to keep um, women involved in the game and and expanding their focus. so um, I think it's an exciting time for the sport because in in two thousand and three it was devastating. Um, you know the sport will survive uh, it's just Wps that, that failed, but um, so I think it's going to be a little bit harder. But women now still have a path, and we've got some, some role models that are showing that you can continue your career for a few years, and, and here's what I've done, here's what other people have done.
0: Switching from the United States to looking at, at other areas of the world, I want to ask first, uh, what regions or countries do you see particularly strong development for, uh, for women's soccer in terms of uh, uh, training, in terms of club teams and, and leagues?
1: Italy was was really in the 80s and 90s, sort of the the premier league. Scandinavia, is, uh, particularly Norway and Sweden, has always been very egalitarian in terms of women's involvement in in anything in society. So they started to to train the the girls and and young women players the, the same as the the men. So I think technically Sweden is a very good league. Germany has made strong improvement from, because actually the sport was banned in Germany prior to 1970. Um, You weren't allowed to to play it as a woman. So um, that league also is is very strong, and they're getting um, much better attendance. So the Women's World Cup really leveraged that. Iceland is a league that a lot of Americans go to. Um, It's a nice country to to live in, and and the league is is pretty good, and they, they can play some games indoors. Um, so that's that's been attracted to to a lot of Americans. Those are France. I think is starting to to improve as well. England has always been been um, behind. Uh, they do have a, a national semi-professional league that they launched last year, um, and that should be be good for the the future. But I think there's only one American in that league right now.
0: So one region that you you focus on is the Middle East, and and generally when. Uh, we read about women's sports in the Middle East. It's typically a, uh, a negative view. Uh, but you actually are, are quite positive about soccer and, and women's sports in, in the Middle East and Islamic North Africa. Why is that?
1: I met two people at the 2007 World Cup. Um, one was um, Dr. Sahar al-Hawari, and she's in Egypt, and she really was one of the, the true leaders of the sport, starting the sport there um, Paying players to live in her house, um, and, and learn the game while they were going to school, and some of them were from outlying areas. And the other was, um, a, a FIFA coach that was assigned to help develop the sport in, in Europe, um, or I'm sorry, in, in the region. Um, was the top player and coach in Germany, wanted a different challenge, so she's been, um, coaching in Bahrain, in Pakistan, and Afghanistan, so she's, out on, um, you know, in the field in these other countries and, and the two of them were both so positive about the potential and they say, you know, you look at the, the statistics and it says there's no women's soccer in Israel or there's none in Palestine or Afghanistan. She said, we know there is. It's just not organized um, or it may be five a side or it may be in the street. so it's, um, they're playing it. It's just helping them take these next steps. We're not trying to create national teams, we're just trying to create opportunities where the um, the, the girls and young women have fun and um, that they're allowed to do it by their parents. So Monica Staub would spend a lot of time with the parents in these countries to, to allow the, their daughters to, to play. And so, and she's, you know, I... I'm a role model. I didn't realize that going in. And she said, I didn't really consciously think of that, but she said, I'm a woman and I played. And so they look up to you, but it's talking about, you know, what you can do with your education, what other opportunities there are for women other than just to get married young and and have families.
0: You write though, that, uh, women and girls in Africa who want to play soccer face a much more difficult situation than, than in the Middle East. So what are the problems there?
1: Unfortunately, there's a um, and it depends on the country, but there's there's certainly some some stereotypes of women players, and, and some of it has to be do with the uh, sexual preference. In in other cases, um, particularly in South Africa, men will organize teams so that they can date the the players, and the players won't, and they'll cut them, and and so there's there's still some exploitation. Of of women players there's one player that was playing in a uh, central african country and and they said you know we know um your sexual orientation you're not good at hiding it and so she's playing in europe very good player but um you know was was basically told you you have to hide it better you know and and so those sorts of things shouldn't be part of the sport it's 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 playing we want to focus on the way they play and the styles and and coaching decisions and things like that not all these peripherals so in africa those things tend to get prioritized also there's a lot of money a lot of bonus payments that get paid and a, a coach um a national team assistant coach that's that's in the states and coaching college said you know i had no control over these things they were getting bonuses from this person this company and and he said they they wouldn't get it and they come in moping and he said, "I had no idea what the, what was going on here." Um, so those things tend to to cloud over the the development of the game. I think we're we're hopeful at the grassroots level, and the grassroots would be the amateurs and you know, the girls starting the game as they would in in the states or Canada. Um, but it's it's a lot of these obstacles that that the women have to to overcome that that is still frustrating.
0: So they have to overcome uh, these these cultural obstacles these negative views towards women playing sports
1: yes and and it's it's different from the Middle East um, but it's still um, perceptions of women's roles mm-hmm. um, and so when you know American players go to these countries and do camps and 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 or play in a league uh, what what they're trying to get across is that as an American or as a Canadian, in college I also worked, or I worked in the summer, and here's, you know, I've learned different languages, I want to go on to, to school, or I want to have a career. They talk about those those options to the the, the players, and the younger players particularly, because many times they're not close to that. They, they're only shown that they, as a woman you have one route mm-hmm. in life, and so, you know, those, those ambassadors... It um, doesn't have to be a, a national team player. It can be anyone that that encounters and, and interacts with with those players in other countries.
0: So then, what is the the problem in Latin America? Because women in in Latin America also face steep obstacles.
1: Depending on again the country, but it, there's more of the uh, machismo persona that that they have to overcome and. It's not as as much tied up into uh, gender preference, but more of that this is not a quote unquote lady like sport uh for for you to be be doing so you know we've certainly seen marta brazil we've seen some some marvelous players come out of Mexico. I think it's the tacit support for the sport is that yeah, okay, you know marta's very very good and and we have a good national team but uh, the club teams aren't funded, and and there's not much support for it. So it's, you know, it's it's grudgingly accepted now, mm-hmm. where it really wasn't before. But it's it just seems that it's it's a much harder path in Latin America. Plus, where the resources, if it's between spending on the men's team or spending on the women's, and I don't think Latin America is different than other countries, but um, the women really have to fight for those resources, whether it's money, whether it's fields, whether it's time, um, whether it's, okay, you can play on that field over there. What hasn't had grass since the last solar eclipse, you know, those, those sorts of things. So, um, so I think Latin America is still, you've got very talented players. You don't have the numbers that you would expect to see, Mm -hmm. um, given you know the 20 years of, of uh, pretty rapid development so
0: you have an interesting section in your chapter on Latin America about uh, three women three north american players who go to uh, brazil to play for a women's club team there and uh, so, so what did they discover in their year there because they they openly admitted they were their eyes were open to the uh, situation facing women athletes in other countries
1: I think the, the the biggest thing was that all that they had is North Americans where you know um I think all three of them were between twenty two and twenty four and i've met met all three over the the years one had played in Toledo, so I used to watch her uh, and then her coach told me you know. She's you know, uh, Mal's playing in uh, Santos in Brazil, and I'm like, whoa! And so we had arranged within a day that we had a a, a dialogue going. Um, I think it was that they've got um, chances. Two of them are still playing amateur ball, but they're they've, they've gone to to grad school. Um, one of them is is working in a, a career now. So they had choices, and they they played soccer because they loved it. But this was not going to be. Um, they were going to do other things with their life and most of the players their teammates they love them but um soccer was it they didn't plan for the future um and so what happens if you get hurt or if you get cut from the team well i go back home i get married um you know again not seeing the options and so they would talking to them about going to school going to you know playing college because he said they said any of them could um, but only a couple of them had that motivation um, to a learn English and and do that and and so even though they weren't getting paid for it their status was they were a professional player for Santos of Brazil I think that's what they they took away the the most the living conditions were were pretty basic and and pretty harsh but it was the the, the teammates that they loved but there still was a gap between their aspirations and and the opportunities that they had here in the States and in Canada versus what Brazilians face, Brazilian women. So on the
0: cover of the book, you have a, a photograph of Anna Piccarelli, who's the, the keeper for the Italian national team. And uh, Piccarelli is something of a rep- representative figure uh, in that she's an American who plays abroad for another national team and is this a um i don't know if you'd say a common but but a not unusual option for for some north american players
1: not unusual at all and it's really been cultivated um i met i dialogued with anna and i knew her her um agent but i met her last wednesday night um she played with uh poly blues and you know she was basically told um, had a, a fantastic career at Pepperdine in four years, but tried out for the um, U.S. national team at um, one of the youth levels, and the coach basically said you're too short because you're five foot four. Um, she flies through the air; it's amazing. Um, I was impressed last Wednesday night seeing her live, um, and and her team played the U.S. Um, in a regional knockout to get. Uh, into the into the World Cup in 2010 in Germany, and so um, uh, they played one game in Italy and one in the U.S. And I told some some journalist friends I said, "Do you know Italy's goalkeeper is American?" And they're like, huh? and and New York Times finally picked up on it, but they were like, "No, that can't be." So so what happens is second and third generation um, women now, as as men have are starting to see that they can they can qualify through FIFA through the world body to play for a country of origin. So uh of, through parent or grandparent. And um the Greek national team uh, I think had ten Americans in the two thousand and four Olympics. Um Anna Picarelli was, was in Europe traveling, uh stopped and, and trained with an Italian team. They signed her instantly. So you know, they're still American. She moved back to the the state she had played in Italy for three years, but she was getting married, and she 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 missed um, her family because um, she was living over there for so long. But um, still, is is going to Macedonia, I think, in a week to play with the Italian national team. So she's still their starting goalkeeper. But you'll continue to see that Americans will look at that if they have the opportunity. It's certainly, it's it's not turning their back on their country um, because she's still, you know, passionately American, but she wasn't given the option to play. And, um, you know, I think she, she's played in the um, European Championships and it was a revelation. So, you know, you go to a country where there's a... There's, uh, Fewer skilled players, and she brings a, a player like her brings in a lot of technical skills that they're not taught in some of those countries. So,
0: so something that you do discuss in the book, Tim, in in various contexts, is the use of of sexuality to promote women's soccer, and and there have been some uh, uh, famous examples of this over the years, such as the members of the German national team appearing in Playboy and a nude calendar by members of the Australian national team and uh, even Hope Solo appearing last year in the ESPN body issue. So what did you find in terms of, of the reactions of players and and the reactions of soccer officials to this kind of promotion of the, of the game?
1: You know, it was discussed within WPS with some of the general managers. And I think for the most part um, – They want to stay away from those things. I think the player has an individual choice. And so if Hope Solo wants to to do that, that's fine. I think where a lot of these situations have come is because someone says it'll help promote the game. I think that's a fallacy. It doesn't help. It detracts from the game to where, you know, we're talking about, you know, a, a person's gender or their preference or all these outliers. So, you know, if someone wants to, to do a calendar or, or do a photo spread, that's that's her choice. You know, I hope she's compensated for it. But don't do it under the guise or don't be um led to do it under the guise that it's gonna promote the sport. Um Alex Morgan was also on the uh the ESPN and her father is still talking about, you know, he was very comfortable with it, but people have said, you know, why you know, how can you allow that? And so um, to me, it's a, a distraction, and it doesn't help to sell the sport because there's there, we want people to watch the sport and react to the sport and the players and the play on the field and the coaching just as they do on the men's side and stay away from all these other things. So, you know, men's team have done it. Um, in Canada, there was a men's team in a league that I um, was a general manager in, and they, they posed nude. So this was about the, the 90s and got them a little attention because no one had, had known this team. But, you know, the team was dreadful on the field. So, <laughs> you know, is it is it really – was it helping the York Rockets um, get more people? Yeah, probably for a game or two. And then people realize, hey, they stink, you know. <laughs> so, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty adamant that it's just – those sorts of things aren't helping the sport and i think with the 2011 world cup that um you know and the, and the fantastic reaction in the states and people watching the games and talking about it i, I think hopefully we should be beyond a lot of that the, the espn is a little bit different to me because they do you know they have a history and it's it's really um it's it's not pornographic and in, in intent and so That one I'm I'm a little more comfortable with, but still, it's not, to me, it's not going to promote soccer or roller derby or whatever sport. Mm -hmm.
0: So when we talk about the, the history of women's soccer or women's sports in general, um, typically we look at obstacles placed in the way of girls and women by men. And you had mentioned, for instance, the banning of women's soccer in Germany. We can talk about the banning of, of women's soccer in England uh, until the 1970s. Um, but I want to pick up with something uh, from the film. You, you, your, your book refers in its title to the film Bend It Like Beckham. And something that's noteworthy in the film is that uh, much of the opposition to both of the lead characters in in their playing football comes from women and i want to ask you in terms of of the research you've done do you find uh, you know look looking across the world women's opposition to women playing soccer
1: i don't think it's an it's an opposition um in a developing country, so in a Jordan, i think it's it's a cultural opposition to is this an appropriate role it within the u s and in Canada I think the opposition is is that women don't seem to watch women's sports mm-hmm. um and and women have told me that over the you know as recently as a few weeks ago where you know, and and you know, we can dig out statistics and show, but there does seem to be a trend that, particularly on leagues, you know, Olympics and World Cups are are different, but on on a league that um, women aren't primarily watching the WNBA or the the softball league or even college softball. So, so that's I think. That's a challenge, and what we're hoping is that you know a next generation where if you've grown up playing soccer and played in high school or and or college that you're more likely than in your thirties to to attend and and watch other women play and you still like men's soccer or or men's basketball I think that's that's a challenge it's not it's not that they don't feel that it' it shouldn't be done they just are no interest in it, so they're more likely to to watch men so you know that's that's a, the challenge. Is is women's soccer is a niche sport of a niche sport, and the niche sport being soccer. And I know that's changing. People say, well, major league soccer and the U.S. national team. But you know, I grew up in the days when the the U.S. national team couldn't couldn't make two passes, two consecutive passes. So things have have changed certainly for the better. But it's still a limited market compared to baseball or football. So so how do we identify those people that are going to attend that are going to sponsor that are going to advertise, and I don't think we've figured that out. I don't think we've fully identified um you know a lot of people say, well, it's the kids, and it's the kids and the parents. you know a lot of the 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 parents particularly but also the kids where if they've if they've been playing soccer three or four games over the week, and the last thing they want to do is go and watch another game. Even the kids tell me that. The parents are like, no way. So, you know, that, that was a targeted WSA WUSA. Let's go after all these clubs, but they're soccered out. So I think that's the, 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 big challenge in getting women, um, to watch, um, games on TV, you know, and the national team, I think the national team is home and dry. I think that model's working. It's, it's, Taking it down to a local level, a team level. I don't think we've got we've answered that rubric. Yeah.
0: So let me ask you following up on that, with with all of the players you've you've interviewed, uh, how many are are fans of soccer? How many will, will watch whether a women's game or an EPL match?
1: Um, that's that's mixed. I think Brandy Chastain is is oh, the one that i think of as a true soccer fan so she will watch any soccer anywhere um i i think there are are some players that do watch the men's the epl or mls there's others that that don't and so they're not um they're interested more in the playing but but not that that much of a fan and so that's probably someone that would not go on to a coaching career um go into business or or something else Um, I think it's that way on the, the men's side as well. So that that to me is not, not a not a key issue. Um, you know, I think it's more of the people that that aren't at that that college or pro playing level, um, trying to get them them in tuned and and involved and a lot of times it's just watching on T V. Um, because of Fox Soccer and and even media outlets, they they want women's stories. They they want um, content for women. Um, I think we'll see more of that in the next five to ten years. Certainly, the women's national team, most of their games are on TV, um, and that's that's marvelous. But they're looking for other, you know, whether it's a pro league or a college game um, involving women to to show. And there's just there's not a lot of that out there, in part because there's not a market yet, so chicken and egg, I guess.
0: So let me ask with that, in following up, do um, the organizers, potential organizers of, of women's leagues and, and the broadcasters, uh, do they see the future for women's professional sports in in somehow getting women to become... Consumers of sports to become fans will sit in front of the television or do they see the option as getting men who are the ones already who are the bulk of, of sports consumers to get them to also become interested in watching women's sports
1: I think it's both I think that, that they would prefer to to target the women um, and co- convert them to watching women's sports uh, so many of them are already watching men's um, I think there's more of an acceptance now of the male market, where WUSA and um, and I've run into this a, a few times over the years, where where you get the feeling that you're not really welcome. You know, and, I mean, personally, all I have to say is, you know, I was promoting the U.S. national team when you know th- there were 300 people watching me a ham, so you know, <laughs> not even start with me. But but that um, WUSA did really went after women's market. Um, and and the men weren't a priority, so WPS re- realized that yes, there are men that like to watch the the women's soccer and and they like soccer or they like just women's soccer, whatever. So I think um, it's it's a combination of both of those. I think the the one that's more difficult to unlock is is the women watching women's sports. Um, so how do we do that? I, I think it'll happen in 20 or 30 years. It's just, what's, what's that trigger? You know, and, and the Olympics and the World Cups, you know, everybody gets behind that. It's, it's transferring that to the league or the, you know, the daily level. Um, that's where we haven't come close.
0: So Tim, I'll ask you, you finished the book with mention of the, the 2011 World Cup in Germany. And, and how would you see that tournament Fitting within the history of women's soccer
1: for the the U.S. national team, I think it it created that time when people in the U.S. were watching the sport for the sport. They heard, "Boy, something's exciting coming on!" Um, you know, the U.S. was behind and dead in the water against Brazil. Won the game and in, in penalty kicks, exciting game. Um, and they kept, you know, all their games were like that from that point on. So. Um, people weren't talking about the fact oh it's women playing it's just boy that Abby Wambach she's a wonderful forward so i think that that was um an important point in the us i think internationally um what i saw in germany was um the competitiveness of the teams and so you didn't have that before you had it in the past teams losing 9 to 1 10 to 1 um, I think the biggest gap this time was for to nothing. It was Canada, unfortunately, against France. Um, tough game to watch to to be there, but that. Um, so you you've got really those 16 teams. Um, there were no weak teams. It was it was very competitive tournament. And we hadn't seen that before. Looking ahead to 2015 in Canada, Canada will be a wonderful host. Um, It really will be a a very good World Cup. They are expanding to 24 teams. So some people say, well, you're going to have some weak teams in there. I'm not so sure about that. I think that the sport has progressed in a number of countries, that that still will be a a strong tournament top to bottom. I, I was disappointed that there were only two bidders for the two thousand fifteen World Cup, Canada and uh Zimbabwe. Well Zimbabwe couldn't you know, economically can't get out of its own way right now. So that wasn't realistic and I, I sat there and I you know, it was great for Canada. i was you know fully supportive of that. I think that could have happened four or eight years ago, but so no one else is bidding, no Argentina, no um France, nothing. So I I think that hopefully the 2015 World Cup will spur other countries, like in Australia even, um, to bid in the future, where there's four or five countries bidding, as with the Men's World Cup, because that rang hollow to me. Um, And it wasn't um, a done deal on the Canadian side until very late in the game why was no one else bidding? Did they not perceive that it was important, or was it because there were 24 teams too much to manage? So I, I think that that next time we'll see more people bidding, more countries bidding, but, but that didn't ring well to me. But all in all, I think the international sport's in, in very good shape, and just um, it's, it's exciting to see. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'll ask to finish, Tim, what, what was your review of Bend It Like Beckham?
1: I loved it. Um, I was on a plane from sweden to to the u s and i didn 't know anything about the movie and and um, I watched it in shock because to me it was um, arguably one of the the first if not the first movie that treated the sport without the you know sort of a put down as we see in some of the American movies um, and plus the the depiction of the 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 women trying to to play the game and and um not being allowed I I thought it was brilliant I thought it was accurate um I, I was stunned so I think it 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 presented the sport of soccer in general um in a great way and and um you know it was very successful in Europe um and and I think uh held its own in the US as well um surprisingly but um yeah it's, it's one of my all-time favorites <laughs>
0: Well, thanks for coming on New Books and Sports. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. That's been great. You've been listening to
0: an interview with Tim Graney about his book, Beyond Bend It Like Beckham, The Global Phenomenon of Women's Soccer, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2012. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of recent publications in subjects from science and technology to jazz and popular music. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to New Books and Sports on iTunes and link to our Facebook page, where you can offer feedback and find links to thoughtful, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
1: It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy.